My life first is 1 Corinthians 9.25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to earn a crown that will not last. But we do it to earn a crown that will last forever. And it's easy for me to relate to that both as a parent and as a coach. As a coach, I was very fortunate uh, to win a state championship at Waverly to earn that crown that the verse talks about. But I've also been on the other end where I've had to tell guys in a locker room, guys that are crying, that their season is over and uh, their career is over. And that in time, as the verse talks about again, uh, you'll get over this and it will go away. As a parent, I'm also... Uh, had the great opportunity. I have three kids. I was able to coach them growing up, and it seems like in, I think we started in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, traveling around. You know, we won those medals, and we won those trophies, and we won those crowns, as the verse talks about again. And now those kids are a senior, a sophomore, and a seventh grader. I'm really getting old. And uh, those trophies are still in their room, but... Uh, Eventually, they're going to go to boxes, and they're going to go away. And I guess what I'm most proud about is that uh, my kids had a great child, and they accomplished a lot. But as a father, I'm most proud about that today we're in church together as a family, and uh, we're growing in our faith together, and we're working on that crown that's going to last us forever. And as a coach, I'm very excited to say that Eight or ten of our players that are going to be on our basketball this season are here as well. And watching them grow in their faith uh, makes me feel good, too, as a coach. And so I couldn't be more pleased. That's great. It's great. I love hearing what other people's life verses are. Um, Just a funny little story about my husband. He doesn't know I'm going to say this. But for years, I think ever, sorry, ever since I knew him, <clears throat> when people would ask Chuck what his life verse was, he would always very seriously kind of say it's Genesis 27:11, you know, which people would be like, yes, yes, that's a good one, until they would look at it. <clears throat> and then they would read this. Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, but my brother is a hairy man, and I am a man with smooth skin. <laughs> so that's Chuck's life verse. I'll let you interpret that. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, sharp transition. Psalm 119 says this. It says, Your word, God, is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. God's word, the psalmist is trying to tell us, is what allows us, if we access it, to orient ourselves in a dark world so that we know where we're going. It helps us find our way when we are lost. It gives us sight when we are blind and when we are closed in on all sides by storms. God's word is a light for us so that we can find our way. And we really believe this at Orchard. And it's why we're working so hard to take down all the hurdles that we all have for engaging in God's word. And so that's why we're, we're kind of kicking off the fall with this series called Life Verse. Of course we believe that a steady diet of scripture, all of scripture, is important. But we also believe, and people have believed this through the centuries, 
the power of allowing one verse, one section of Scripture to guide and inform and direct and actually even shape your life for a season of time. And so, as you've heard over these last weeks, as you've heard again this morning, we are inviting all of you into this series, which is not just a teaching series, but it is an all-church project. And I believe if we engage in it, it could be a project of potentially immense power in the life of Orchard Hill Church. So when we are asking each one of you to select a life verse for this season, we're not just asking you to select it, but we're asking you to memorize it, to pray it, to live it, to let it live in you, to breathe it, to let it motivate and guide and direct your path. For this next season of life. So I would say Chuck and I, we've been married for 26 years. Uh, recently had our anniversary. I got him nothing, which is his favorite gift because it means I spent zero dollars. So that was good. Remember that. Um, I would say for a big chunk of our life together, Micah 6.8 has been our guiding verse as a couple. Now, he has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That passage and the, and the truth that God is trying to impart has shaped a huge part of who we have become as a family. Um, but we're stepping into a new era pretty soon. Our last child is leaving the nest in just a few short months. And so as we've thought about, as I've thought about this next stage of life, um, I think that Micah 6-8 verse will continue with us, but also um, we're going to be, I'm going to be at least, I'm really meditating on um, this new verse, Matthew 6-33. But I'm going to read the whole context of the verse this morning because I want us to talk about what, what, what I think at least part of what Jesus meant when he um, taught this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's on page 960 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along because I don't have a slide. I'm just going to read starting uh, Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 25. This is Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, very famous passage. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom of God. 
And he clearly defines this kingdom in just a few verses before this particular part where he's teaching the Lord's Prayer. Again, a very familiar part. He tells his disciples to pray this. He says, pray, thy kingdom come. And then in typical Jewish fashion, something called parallelism, he says the same thing, but in a different way. He actually, I think I have this up on the next slide. He says, your kingdom come, God. And then he goes on to define what that means in the next sentence. He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was explaining that through him, the kingdom of heaven is invading the kingdom of this earth. That is what that prayer is about. And he says that wherever and whenever people choose to live under the rule and the reign and the power and the protection of the king, that kingdom, in some miraculous way, is present. And he spent the bulk of his ministry inviting lost and broken people into life in this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And as he went around and taught and lived amongst people, he cast such a compelling vision of the kingdom that people, ordinary people like you and me, left everything they had. They left their jobs, their families, their land to follow Jesus into life in that kingdom right now. This is the good news he came to bring. He said over and over, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near and the doors to it are now about to be blown wide open by what I'm going to do here. Pastor John Ortberg says it this way. He says, God's power and reign and presence has now become available to anyone, to ordinary human beings. And you can walk right into it, Jesus says. Anyone can. And we forget now how radical and inclusive and unexpected Jesus' invitation was. He said things like tax collectors and prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of God than the religious leaders of his day, which just ticked them off a little tiny bit. He said to people, you can begin right now to live the kind of life you will live in eternity. So what does that look like? I mean, what, what does that mean? What, did you, what kind of picture was Jesus trying to paint? Well, very simply, life in the kingdom of God looks like Jesus. Jesus lived his earthly life under the reign and the rule of his father. He lived fully on this earth in the kingdom of God. Remember that he said, you know, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Everything Jesus did was the will of his father. In the, in the garden of Gethsemane, his famous prayer, you know, not my will, father, but yours be done. So the key for us in knowing what the kingdom of God looks like, is found in Jesus, in his life, his ways, his teachings. And if you'll remember, and this is just a brief kind of overview, Jesus tells us that life in the kingdom of God looks like this. The greatest is the one who humbles himself like a little child. The greatest is always the one who is serving. Whoever is first in the kingdom of this world, Jesus said, will be last in the kingdom of God. And whoever is last 
in this world will be first in the kingdom. In the kingdom, you see, if someone strikes you on the cheek, you turn to him the other also. In the kingdom, we are not people of revenge or retaliation. In the kingdom of God, we love our enemies. And we pray for those people who persecute us. In the kingdom, whatever you do to the least among you, it is as if you have done that exact same thing to Jesus. In the kingdom, the blind start to see and the lame start to walk and the oppressed are set free. In the kingdom, we don't fret or panic or worry, but we simply ask the king for what we need. And then we live generous, carefree lives in his care. In the kingdom, we don't judge, lest we be judged. In the kingdom, we forgive those who wronged us to the same degree that the God of heaven has shown immeasurable forgiveness to us. In the kingdom of God, those who seek peace are called God's sons and daughters. The poor are actually rich. Those who mourn are comforted. And the meek actually end up inheriting all the power. And in the kingdom, he or she who has been forgiven much, loves much. Jesus said the kingdom of God looks nothing like the kingdoms of this earth. And when he invites us to live an abundant life through him, he is not saying, just wait around on this earth, just bide your time until you go to heaven, and that's where abundance will start. He always presented the kingdom of God as a both now and a not yet kind of a deal. And he is calling us, yes, to an eternity in the kingdom, but also to a kingdom of God kind of life right now. The church exists to reveal to the world what life in the eternal kingdom will look like. As one writer said, we are to whistle the tune now that we will sing in eternity forever. And he's really saying in this section in Matthew chapter 6, there are two kingdoms in which you can choose to live. There is the kingdom of the self, where you worry about what you will wear and what you will eat and what you will drink and all those kinds of things. And there is the kingdom of God. And I'm inviting you to pick which kingdom you are going to orient your life around. So let me just talk for a second about the kingdom of the self. It's a very familiar kingdom for me because I spend way too much time in it. And there is just one question that determines and guides behavior in the kingdom of the self. And that question is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Is a kingdom ruled by self-interest? What shall I wear? What shall I eat? The focus is on myself and my life and my needs and my wants and my desires and my reputation and my status and my security and my comfort and the whole worldly project of I got to make sure people know how important I am. The prayer when we live in that kingdom is my name be hallowed. My kingdom come. My will be done. But in the kingdom of God, there is a very different question that determines behavior. And that question is simply, how can I love God with all that I have? 
And how can I love my neighbor as I love myself? In the kingdom of God, the question, what's in it for me, no longer exists. Because, as Dallas Willard writes, and I put this on the screen, apprentices of Jesus, those people who are following Jesus into the kingdom of God, do not have to look out for themselves anymore because God, and not them, is in charge of their life. In the kingdom, you see, we trust the king with our lives, and then we get about doing his business. And the prayer in that kingdom, of course, is your name be hallowed, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it is a kingdom ruled by love, love for God and love for others and appropriate love for self. So basically what Jesus is saying in this one little section in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is there are two kingdoms in which you and I can live. And I believe that the greatest challenge of the next decade or so for me as I graduate out of this crazy stage of intensive parenting and move out into the wide open spaces of the next decade is whether or not I will devote my life to building my own kingdom or whether I will devote myself to learning more and more fully to live in the kingdom of God. And there really is the starkest of differences. And so as I think about this, you know, I'm always wondering, well, what does that really look like on a Tuesday? I mean, I can go around and talk about seek first the kingdom, but what I always want to know is what does that look like in a real life? And so as I think about it, I think about it in three ways that I'm just going to talk about this morning. There's more, but these are kind of the top three for me recently. I believe that I can seek first the kingdom of God in small, daily ways. Remember, Jesus said the kingdom is like yeast in a loaf of bread. It is like the smallest of seeds that grows into a large tree. Sometimes life in the kingdom looks like really small, daily, seemingly insignificant decisions that in a way are the whole ballgame of life. So now I'm going to tell a golf story. This isn't about you, Will. It's about me, but you inadvertently. So my my family's so glad they're here. Oh, so Will plays golf, and so he goes to all these golf tournaments across the state, and is now in the midst of high school golf. And if any of you have ever been in the world of high school sports, parents, you know that the key characteristics tend to be comparison and cutthroat competition, which are lovely. And a lovely part of the kingdom of the self. So we were at a summer golf tournament recently, and I had my feet firmly planted in the kingdom of self that morning, as often happens to me. And um, Will was going neck and neck with another kid whose mother was also there following. I'd never spoken a word to her. I didn't know her name. And yet all of a sudden, as the, as the tournament got closer and closer and the boys were neck and neck, she became an enemy of mine. I did not like her. I didn't like her clothes, the way she looked, the way she talked to her son, etc. This is life in the kingdom of the self. But the kingdom of God intersected my kingdom. When that woman came and sat down next to me on a bench while we waited for the boys to tee off, and this was the first word she spoke to me. She said, my husband usually comes to watch our son, but he was just diagnosed with cancer. 
This statement snaps me out of my worldly stupor. And I was reminded what I am here on this earth for. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done right here on this golf course as it is in heaven. And I was able to, you know, as best I could, before the boys teed off, offer her words of comfort and encouragement and hope. There's a college student, I don't even know his name, from the University of Florida, who prays this prayer all the time throughout his day. Your kingdom come, God. Your will be done. And he said, embracing this simple prayer has taught me to imagine what the world would be like if the justice and mercy of heaven became a reality on earth. And he said, nine times out of ten when I pray this prayer... God points me towards some small thing I can do to make this world a little more just and a little more merciful. Isn't that beautiful? Every day, every encounter is an opportunity for us to pray, Your kingdom come, God, in my life, in this day, in this meeting, when I meet this person in our kitchen. Seek first the kingdom in the smallest of ways, and God will grow it into the biggest of trees. So next I think about seeking first the kingdom in big, life-changing ways. How, How can God use my life in bigger ways, in my community, in my workplace, in my school? How can God use Chuck and me for his kingdom work in Waterloo where we live? What does that look like? So one Catholic writer said that God's best name is often surprise. I love that. So what we are to pray, all of us, your kingdom come, God, and then we're to keep our eyes open for how God might want to use us in big, powerful, life-changing ways. And when I think of this kind of thing, the first people I think of are my parents who moved into the east side of Waterloo in the late 1960s, right after Martin Luther King was assassinated. They moved in with a whole bunch of people from their church to help fight for civil rights and school integration. And obviously the question that they asked before they moved their three little white children into that community was not what's in it for us. The question that they asked was, how does this help us love God and love our neighbor in the ways that Jesus taught? Thy kingdom come, they prayed, as the National Guard tanks rolled down our street the first night in our new house, trying to quell the anger and the violence that rose up in our streets. Thy kingdom come, my parents prayed, as they put their three little white kids into an integrated school right after a firebomb had exploded in the kitchen in the gym of the school the night before. Thy kingdom come, they prayed, as they took pregnant teenage girls into our home to help care for them until they had their babies. Thy kingdom come, they prayed. And for over 20 years, they were a voice for those in our community who often felt they had no voice. And there are people in our church right now praying the same prayer, doing these exact same kinds of things, both in our community and across the globe. And God, whose best name might just be surprise, might call you or me into these same kinds of big life-changing acts if we simply decide to seek first his kingdom above all things.
And the last way I think about seeking first his kingdom might be surprising to you, but it's desperately needed in my life. And that is in how I live with myself. You see, I am my own worst problem. Anybody? I'm the hardest issue I have in my own life. And so for me, the most important place where the kingdom of God needs to break in and to intersect with my kingdom is with the way I live with myself. Because in order to fully live in God's kingdom, I have to reject two worldly attitudes. I must reject self-centeredness. I think I've got that up there. Or self-obsession, same thing. Which is exactly what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 6. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? It's all about self. But I also have to reject what Brennan Manning calls the fatal trap of self-rejection. Self-hatred. Self-condemnation. It is really, in the end, just another form of self-obsession. And so what I need to strive for with the Spirit's power in this next season of life is the kingdom power of self-forgetfulness. I need to learn to live with grace and joy in the midst of the reality of my own amazing degree of weakness. I need to live out the daily reality of taking up my cross, of dying to self-obsession, of trusting God to take care of every part of my life so that I can be freed up to serve and to love other people in kingdom kinds of ways. And in order to do this, listen, this is so important. In order to do this, I need to learn to fully believe in the love of God for me. This guy named Basil Hume, I don't know who he is, of England. Only in England would you name a kid Basil. Um, He claimed this, that Christians find it easier to believe that God exists than that God loves them. Easier to believe that God exists than that he loves us. And so I want to come to believe that the absolutely unconditional love of God is actually true for me. Brennan Manning puts it this way, and then I'll close. He said, if you took the love of all of the best mothers and fathers who have lived in the course of human history, all of their goodness, all of their kindness, patience, fidelity, wisdom, tenderness, strength, and love, and you united all of those qualities in a single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you and me at this moment. Isn't that beautiful? It is only in this that true kingdom self-forgetfulness can be found. It is only when I completely trust God with my whole life that I can be free from the grip of both self-obsession and self-rejection. And I can step into that kingdom power of self-forgetfulness. Thy kingdom come, God, in small ways, in big ways, and in the ways that I live with myself. And how do I know if I'm seeking first the kingdom? Because again, isn't it great to say it and then to never have to assess whether it's true or not? How do I know? Real quickly, I check my wake. I watch for what I leave behind 
at the end of a day or a week or a month. And if I am living in the kingdom of self, I will leave behind jealousy or bitterness or slander or hatred or gossip or confusion. But if I am living in the kingdom of God, I will leave behind glimpses of that kingdom. I will leave behind peace and mercy and grace and joy and healing. So what if I could move into my 50s? I'm far from there, but I'm moving slowly toward them, slowly, and 60s and 70s, not growing bitter and small-hearted and scared and choosing to be obsessed about what I eat or what I wear, about what others say about me. But what if instead I moved into these next decades grateful and big-hearted and fearless and full of the grace and the mercy and the powerful, life-changing love of God in Jesus Christ. I think building my future around the seeking of God's kingdom first and praying thy kingdom come might just be the start of an adventure like Chuck and I have never imagined before. So when Will graduates, no crying for us because we're going after it, seeking first the kingdom. So ta-ta, Will. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the vision of the kingdom that should inspire our hearts and cause us to give up everything, to step with you right into the kingdom of your Father. Help us to do that, each one of us, in ways big and small. Amen.